Hello and welcome to In the Field, the podcast celebrating the bicentennial of the Church of St. Luke in the Fields here in the West Village of New York City. Today's episode is a real treat, certainly for me as the archivist, and for anyone who has an interest in the origins of the parish theologically and how it has responded to its ever-changing congregation and the broader community over the past two centuries. I'm talking with Professor Don Girardi, who is both an educator and the resident historian here at St Luke's. As you'll hear, he has a wonderful way of illuminating history. He's a born raconteur, and he has a deep commitment to sharing the fascinating past and evolving future of the parish, its spiritual life, social times, and the personalities who've been instrumental in forming the heart and soul of St Luke's over the years. Please enjoy a conversation with Professor Don Girardi. So welcome and thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. And talking with us today about, I think, you know, we're going to examine in some ways and as much as we can in our short period of time, both the social history of St. Luke's, of mm-hmm. which you are a part, mm-hmm. and also the physical history, the, the mm-hmm. history over 200 years mm-hmm. of this very venerable institution. Mm-hmm. And lad, we're sitting in the chapel mm-hmm. at the back of the church and it has wonderful acoustics, which Michael likes, mm. but also there's a wonderful sense of calm mm. really too, uh, a sense of history, I think mm. that's quite palpable, that also reflects the very interesting life and times of our church, would you say? Absolutely, and it has a special meaning historically too, in a sense, mm-hmm. if I can just say that. Um, the old church, uh, the one that burnt down. Yeah. Um, for the second time, of course. For the, the, the second times, time. Yeah. Um, the 20th century mm-hmm. one. Um, mm-hmm. Had a lovely side chapel called the Lady Chapel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, uh, through the efforts uh, of Father Schlitter, mm-hmm. who was the main um, influence right. on um, St. Luke's Chapel in those days uh, from the time he came um, in 1909. Until his death, after the just after the Second World War, um, and a very long serving, a very long serving rector, and he was very deeply in the uh, Anglo-Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk, if you like, mm-hmm. more about his his time here. Uh, but he made major changes. Um, so there's this lovely Lady Chapel to our left now, over mm-hmm. there. Um, with an altar and all the rest and the reserve sacrament. Um, and when the fire happened here, um, everything was destroyed here. Mm. Um, and um, the architect, Hugh Hardy, uh, I think quite wisely decided uh, to expand somewhat to the west here and that uh, open up the chancel as mm-hmm. they did and have um, the chapel here. And I must say, since I I experienced both of them, mm. although I didn't come early enough to be a regular participant in anything going on in the Lady Chapel, except to go in once in a while for a little meditation, mm-hmm. um, the two are so different mm. and yet so similar. Ah, interesting. And for, for the reasons that you described, um, there is something about this place. It's much plainer mm-hmm. um, in um, in style, mm-hmm. although it's been beautifully enhanced by these uh, icons right. that have been acquired since the fire. Um, so they have that in common, uh, but also that spirituality, uh, meditative spirituality, mm-hmm. um, is somehow continued in an idiom mm-hmm. um, that speaks to where we are now and, and also speaks to the, the, the church itself, the, the nave and, and all that. Um, I remember coming in um, when the rebuilding was just about finished um, and Lucia Ballantyne, mm-hmm. who was 
priest at the time. Was she perhaps the first female priest, a female Anglican? No, not the not first female Anglican priest, because there were the, mm. the famous 13 ah. uh, who were, uh, mm. uh, uh, so I shouldn't say off the books, uh -huh. uh, but it was not officially sponsored by the church, um, and that's not well expressed either mm. um, in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, she was the first one uh, to be um, ordained here. In a formal... Yes, and she was ordained in this church, I mm -hmm. believe. I attended it. Uh-huh. Um, uh, uh, I forget the date right now. Mm -hmm. And she was a um, wonderfully talented uh, priest. She is the one who asked me um, to get involved in adult education here. Um, and I've been teaching that, that history and the formation class and ever since. Mm -hmm. I remember the incident. Um, mm -hmm. There was a highway up where the, uh, the docks are down there mm -hmm. now. It was a very different village. Mm -hmm. And um, I would do my jogging up there, and she would do her jogging too. And one morning, um, we were jogging in opposite directions, and she stopped me and said, I said, this is the worst thing for a priest to stop a parishioner and ask a favor while you're jogging, but would you consider, you know, teaching? And I mm -hmm. said, sure. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, she and I worked together on that, and I... So what year, you came here roughly around about 1978, Yeah, right? yeah. Mike and I uh, uh, came in in 78. Um, he had been teaching at Middlebury College, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he came, he stopped doing that and came back down to New York um, and got into... Um, international cultural exchange with the Soviet Union and the mm -hmm. American government. So um, uh, we moved down here in uh, 78. Mm -hmm. um, didn't get involved in the parish immediately. I mean, I came to services now and again, mm -hmm. and I saw Carmen Hunter and so forth. Was the rector at the time, was that Ledley? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, Ledley um, came um, as vicar from Trinity mm -hmm. um, in um, 71, I think it was. Um, and he came um, to lead the church, mm -hmm. um, the chapel, uh, into independence. Because um, Trinity, this gets us into another topic. Yes, 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 yes. So kick me if I start you know, going Not off on all. too many different historical no, directions. It's such a rich... Um, it's a very rich history. Background, yeah. Um, but uh, this place in many ways would not exist or it would not be what it became without uh, Trinity Parish. Mm. Um, I was twice under the aegis of Trinity. Well, The no. land was ceded originally. Yeah, uh, but it was... Well, actually, that gets us a little bit into church history. Mm. Should I briefly do sure, that? Sure, let's do that. Um, Trinity um, was, is um, the most materially richly endowed church in the country, I mm -hmm. believe that's correct to say, certainly in the city, because of the largesse of the crown. It was Queen uh, Anne, I think. Yeah, right. It was a double grant. Mm. Um, so, so-called uh, King's Farm, Queen's Farm. And uh, so it was land... Um, this was uh, donated in the very early 18th century. Um, and it was land from where Wall Street is all along the river up here to Christopher Street mm -hmm. um, and then east towards where Varick and Church Streets are and so on. And most of the land was part of the grant. Mm -hmm. uh, some parts were privately owned, kind of small farms. Some people from descended from Dutch farmers. Um, and then, of course, there was the great estate of Sir Peter Warren. Mm. And many acres. They, 300 acres. 300 acres. Uh, which from, is mind-boggling when you consider how big the village is yes. in our perspective. Yes, yes, right? yes. Um, and uh, so, of course, there was no, there were no churches, no mm. Episcopal church, no Anglican church here. But um, that um, summer place he built mm. uh, was built in the 1740s. Um, and uh, went from Bleecker Street, mm -hmm. you know, right down to the river. Mm. Beautiful place. Um, and other um, well-connected people, merchants and so on. So uh, Aaron Burr was snatched. Well, that was a little later, was later. Uh, but, but, right. but in the, you know, 50s and mm -hmm. 60s, mm -hmm. um, had kind of little summer places here to get out of the city. Um, then, um, we, you and I have already spoken about his family mm -hmm. and so forth, mm -hmm. and that's another topic, but um, when, after the revolution, um, when the village began to develop a little bit, um, 
it's important to say a lot of St. Luke's people don't know this mm -hmm. because they say, oh, we are the first church here in you know, Greenwich Village. First church in Greenwich Village. Yeah. Well, we're the first Episcopal church in Greenwich Village. Mm -hmm. But um, before uh, this was established or put in, um, there was um, there were several. There's a Methodist church, briefly. Um, there was a Presbyterian church um, where St. John's Lutheran Church mm -hmm. is now on Christopher Street. There are one or two others, but they didn't last. Mm. So this is the first Episcopal church, and of course it lasted. But it lasted... Uh, in the first instance and later through the um, largesse of and the and, uh, support of um, Trinity. And that requires uh, that I uh, you know, uh, tip the hat to uh, Bishop Hobart. Right. Um, Hobart was a, a major, if not the major, high church uh, bishop in the, in the Northeast. But he and I have a connection. Oh, you uh, too? Uh, but not, not genetically. Uh -huh. um, but um, in terms of um, my research adventures, because the word high church is something, is a term frequently used, but people don't altogether know what it means, mm. uh, as opposed to low church, mm -hmm. which also isn't too well understood. But High church means that one believes theologically the church is not just like any other institution. Theologically speaking, it has a very high theology. That is, it is an institution mm -hmm. and therefore temporal, mm -hmm. but it also is connected somehow or other with divinity. That is, it is um, um, a conduit for um, God's providence. Mm -hmm. And therefore, its offices are important, um, and its structure is important, uh, particularly bishops, episcopacy, very important, uh, and of course the priesthood, um, and the sacraments as passed down through the institution of the church. Um, you see, in England, um, low church folks were perfectly comfortable mm -hmm. with the state support to the degree where they saw it as the church as a kind of department of the state. I mean, mm -hmm. that's overstated, mm -hmm. uh, but they downplayed um, the uh, theology of, of the episcopacy and all that. Mm -hmm. This came over into the colonies, too, so that the churches, Anglican churches in the South tended to be low church. Um, and here, um, how did high church get established? I'm going to enter this story in a moment um, because um, there was a young man in Connecticut uh, born uh, in the 1690s mm -hmm. whose name was Samuel Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote my dissertation about him mm -hmm. at, at Columbia, uh, the American Dr. Johnson. Mm -hmm. And he was, um, he went to Yale, as they all did uh, in those days, all by which I mean three or four mm -hmm. people <laughs> mm -hmm. who were ministers up there in the Congregational Church. And he began reading in a collection of books uh, sent from England, the Dummer Collection, um, and there was a lot of high church theology. And he was convinced that they were right and that he, as a minister of God, was incomplete without Episcopal ordination. Mm -hmm. So um, he and I think three others who were tutoring at Yale, which is pretty much the entire faculty, um, decided they had to convert to Anglicanism.
So, hello. Hello. And he uh, was founded to be its first president. Mm -hmm. So he was the first president of what is now Colombia, and Colombia has its papers. Hence, my choice. Um, it was just <clears throat> heaven sent, <clears throat> so to speak, because it was right there. Right. And I um, uh, really enjoyed uh, the research um, and uh, writing it. Mm -hmm. And it made connections with me in various ways. So that is the foundation for the high church tradition mm -hmm. here intellectually. Um, and um, Trinity became a, a sponsor because of its um, holdings mm -hmm. of this tradition. Mm -hmm. And of course, it was the only Episcopal parish. After the revolution, um, other Episcopal parishes were established and with land grants from Trinity, with financial help from Trinity. Um, and um, a lot of their endowment was used for that in the 19th century, um, some by mid-century to the point where um, a lot of it had uh, been used up in terms of land mm -hmm. grants and so on. Um, so St. Luke's, uh, in, after 1820, when they formed their corporation, uh, benefited uh, by being given a plot of land on which the first church was built, um, and then subsequently some other lots, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's how that connection mm -hmm. began. Then... Could we go back to you and I were discussing previously, yeah. Catherine Ritter, yes. the formidable force Absolutely. behind... Behind the establishment yes. of, of the church. So she's a widow with mm -hmm. eight children, I believe, mm -hmm. running her late husband's jewelry business mm -hmm. in Maiden uh, Lane, right, which was right. extraordinary yes. at the times, and had a, a, a meeting at her home yes. in Little Jones Street, yes. in West Fork. A group of gentlemen, of which I believe she was the only lady there, and they decided that it, uh, an Episcopal church was required yes. and should, in fact, be, be formed and congregated. And I understand the first services were at Amos's farmhouse, yes. which was down there. And then... A little schoolhouse A little there. schoolhouse on right. Amos farm, yeah. which was a, 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 an estate, part of an estate. Yes. And then uh, the next services were held in the, the state prison, which was on the corner of That's right. Christopher Street. Christopher and... Um, and Washington, and Washington Street. Street. Yes, right. In an, um, a room above the watch house. Yes. Which was interesting. And gradually, gradually, well, Don Alonzo Cushman, who was her son-in-law, right. who would later go on to be Cushman Row in, in Chelsea in quite a big wig in realty. Oh, yes. Yeah. He found the first rector, and a year later, the land was, was granted. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, the first rector... Uh, uh, was George Upfold, mm -hmm. um, and he knew him from upstate. Yeah. Um, the interesting story, I may have mentioned this to you once, that Mrs. Ritter was obviously a formidable, as mm -hmm. they say, in France. Mm -hmm. um, she, according to the tradition, um, made it quite clear uh, to Don Alonso and also some other suitors for daughters that if they were seriously interested, they really ought to become Episcopalians. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, he became a major mm -hmm. um, layman in the church here. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, if I can just go very quickly forward, sure. and then we can go back and forth, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting about these things, that um, we're talking about the 1820s. Then we went through, um, very quickly, um, three rectors. Mm -hmm. um, Upfold, of course, was mm -hmm. founder and did very well. Um, and then he left before, uh, sometime in the later 20s um, to become rector of St. Thomas, mm -hmm. uh, which was downtown then. Mm -hmm. And then he left there to become first bishop of Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, and he was um, followed here uh, by a man named um, Levi Silliman Ives, I-V-E-S. Um, and an interesting connection there because he was married to Bishop Hobart's daughter. Oh. Um, and um, he was a very dedicated uh, priest um, and um, was here until for about four years, something like that, um, and then was elected uh, Bishop of North Carolina, anyway. 
And he was then uh, followed uh, briefly by a man by the name of Whittingham. Mm -hmm. um, and um, Whittingham was a very intellectual person um, and very hardworking and very interested in education. As a matter of fact, started a little school, um, not schoolhouse, rented some rooms. Right. Um, and um, that didn't work out in part because um, public school number three, mm -hmm. by that time was open and it was much supported by the community. Um, and then Whittingham had some health problems and he went to uh, Europe for a bit. And then when he came back, he um, left uh, because uh, of his health um, and got a job teaching at General Seminary, which basically he was more interested in yeah. academic life. Until then, he was made Bishop of Maryland. But these were all high church fellows. Um, and um, now, now the high church movement takes a major step in a new direction with the publication in England of um, uh, the Tracts for the Times, mm -hmm. written by uh, some theologians at Oxford, and became known as the Oxford Movement. And their concern was to emphasize, yet again, um, the fact that the Church of England is not just another Protestant church. Mm -hmm. uh, it is really part of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. They weren't using the word Anglo-Catholic, Catholic, but yeah. it was the Catholic Church. Um, and if we had more time, I could tell you some of the wonderful, what should I say, kind of delicious twists and turns, mm -hmm. because um, they, the, 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 tr the first tract of the time was um, because of a, of a speech made by, by one of these fellows. Uh, I won't give you too many names. And he was in, he was concerned that the government in London was going to suppress, that is, do away mm -hmm. with some Anglican bishoprics in Ireland because no Irish weren't going to those churches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they wanted to save money. Right. And for these Oxford scholars, that wasn't reason enough. I mean, you know, you had to involve the church in this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So partly it was a reaction against kind of state control of this kind of thing. But it quickly, the Oxford movement, developed into a major movement to reassert mm -hmm. within the high church tradition uh, the pre-Reformation uh. church. Um, and how so? All right, let's go back to what this church looked like when it opened. And remember... Very federalist style. Very it was very federal. Yes, well, you yeah. can see pictures of it, right? It's a rectangle and so on, yeah. plain glass windows. Mm -hmm. But there were some interesting differences because in all the churches, the Anglican church in the colonial period, almost all of them, the thing you noticed when you came into the church, right there, had the nave, was this huge pulpit, usually two, maybe three-decker, and behind it was the chancel. There was what we call an altar. They would, God for fen, call it an altar. It was a, a table, mm -hmm. a communion table. Mm -hmm. Here, of course, uh, there is the main service. All the services on Sunday morning are quote-unquote masses, right? Communion mm -hmm. services. In the colonial period, um, most places in Virginia, for example, maybe they celebrated the communion four times a year. Mm -hmm. Um, otherwise, it was morning prayer and sermon, 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 sermon. Um, Bishop Hobart, as a high churchman, way before the Oxford movement, said, we have to understand the importance of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And consequently, we should do it more frequently. And the table shouldn't be hidden. So... If you wanted to see what it might have looked like, you go down to St. Paul's Chapel mm -hmm. now, there's a, huge, there's a large colonial pulpit, but it's to the side. It's two deckers, I think. Mm -hmm. But originally, it would have been right in the center aisle. So what, and what you did uh, on a communion Sunday, the few people who would be taking communion 
would stay after morning prayer, mm -hmm. the others would leave, and they'd all gather behind the pulpit around the altar and they would take communion. For Hobart said, we should do it differently. And so consequently, his way was adopted here. Mm -hmm. So what he did is not have a pulpit out there. There was a table, not an altar, but a regular table. But behind it, above it, was a pulpit, mm -hmm. just in the wall. Ah. And when the priest finished what he was doing at the table and was ready to preach, he would go into a door in the wall uh -huh. and go through stairs and pop out ah. of the, uh, the middle balcony and a showman and give a sermon right. and then come back down and, mm -hmm. and do the rest. Mm -hmm. That was one of Hobart's um, innovations. And that was very much part of the St. Luke's tradition early on. Mm -hmm. So that precedes the Oxford movement. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk about the congregation at the time surrounding it. So as you, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. it was Greenwich Village at the time was the summer home of the city folk all the way up, up yeah. town. Yeah. And there were two stagecoaches a day yeah. that would bring you down, right. down here. Um, and then there was the dreaded yellow fever. Oh, God, that was horrible. Right? The epidemic which ravaged yeah. uptown. Yeah. And so many of the summer people found themselves, well, we may as well stay down here because the air is fresh. Yeah. Um, the yeah. fields are, are, yeah. are yeah. clean and dry. We're near the river. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and then, of course, there were merchants who were plying their trade oh, yeah. near the prison. So there were farm oh, yes. people. So yes. Even back then, yeah. there was a curious mix of people, it was a very um, yeah. broad demographic. Well, there were a lot of different kind of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of the 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 um, gentry, if you mm -hmm. want to call them that, of the pre-revolutionary period. Not that many of them had estates after the revolution, mm -hmm. I think. But um, if you were to see a map, I usually use it when I give a lecture on this, of this area just before the church was built. Mm -hmm. What did we have up here, besides the places that you quite rightly uh, mentioned? There were two banks. Mm -hmm. There was a post office. Um, uh, there were some merchant shops. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a community of and people like uh, Mrs. Ritter, mm -hmm. um, who were business people. Um, she was a commuter, which is right, kind of hard to think about that. Right, I mean, right. But there were others who were not commuters, but they had their little shops and so on. Mm -hmm. And that became very typical of the community here mm -hmm. that uh, St. Luke's came to minister to. Mm -hmm. There were uh, tradespeople, people who worked with their hands, but also small business people. There were builders, um, and um, these builders would perhaps they're trained as carpenters mm -hmm. um, and then became you know, construction people mm -hmm. and then became, I should perhaps make the sign against the evil eye, real estate developers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the bane of your existence. Uh, well, <laughs> by the way, I, I put on uh, the St. Luke's um, group page mm -hmm. Hilarious quotations from Clement Clark Moore. Yeah, who was the first warden? Who was the first warden about this? Uh, so, at any rate, this is what the community was like. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it came to be known, this area, as the Knickerbocker Ward. It was mm -hmm. the ninth ward um, because um, it was very much out of old stock, among English uh, background mm -hmm. stock, but not, you know, super wealthy, not the biggest merchants. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the uh, builders uh, did become wealthy people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, Cushman is a good example mm -hmm. of this. So I'm going a, a, around the map in certain ways. Um, I think the business of society is really important. But let's go back briefly to the business of Oxford movement and high church because it became incredibly divisive. Mm -hmm. um, it's one thing to be high church, which is to say, yes, bishops and holy orders are important and you should take communion regularly. It's another thing to begin sounding and looking more and more Roman. Mm -hmm. Too much ritual enrichment. Mm, incense and... And all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And bells. And bells, and the, yes. <laughs> the so, chapel bells. Yes. So um, it became controversial in the 1840s. And the 1840s for St. Luke's 
but also for the whole society, was a financially difficult decade. Mm. Um, Dickens called it, what, the bleak decade or something like that, because mm. it was a depression in, in England, too. And um, the priest who was here at the time, uh, who had um, came after Whittingham. Is that Tuttle? No, no, his name was Forbes. Oh. Um, uh, Murray for Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S. And he and his bride moved into the rectory. Um, and uh, he was much influenced by the Oxford movement. And he became um, a very eager participant in a society called the Ecclesiological Society, something mm -hmm. like that, um, which was some like-minded uh, church people who read the Oxford Movement papers and uh, began to um, um, ask for those kinds of changes. At the same time, um, by that time, I should say, by 1830, Hobart died, and um, they had a, a new bishop. And this bishop was full steam ahead, Oxford Movement, ritual enrichment business. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so basically Forbes was having a difficult time in the 40s because of his leading participation in this movement. With the congregation not responding? Some were, but some were not. Uh -huh. So before the decade was out, our friend Cushman had left, mm -hmm. um, moved up to Chelsea, mm -hmm. uh, became patron of St. Peter's, mm -hmm. um, and that um, uh, attendance declined. So there was a schism, if you like. Well, yeah, people yeah. leaving. Mm -hmm. In addition... Um, and influential people in the church. Yeah, right. Uh, and Forbes' mm -hmm. wife, a poor woman, died. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a personal tragedy, too. At any rate, he felt increasingly he, he wasn't comfortable in the Episcopal Church. So by uh, 49, 1849, um, uh, he said he had to resign. Um, he tried more than once, but people here tried to persuade him not to, but he did. Mm -hmm. And he went over to Rome, and he became ordained as a Roman Catholic ah. priest and studied in Rome. Um, and um, that's when Tuttle came. And he was quite a remarkable. He was uh, absolutely remarkable. And pioneered a lot of the social uh, programs that Abs we see today. Absolutely. He I mean. understood that his uh, community, not yeah. just his parish, was changing and not necessarily in right. the most positive of circumstances. Absolutely. As a mm -hmm. matter of fact, he is the one who started what today we call you know, social outreach mission, mm. while at the same time continuing St. Luke's version mm -hmm. of the high church Oxford movement theology, but without excesses. Ah. Um, it's, um, for example, um, he had frequent communion, uh, but insisted on more conservative vestments and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he led not only this parish, but other church people in the city uh, in these kind of charitable endeavors. I mean, you know about the home for... Well, I'm just looking at it now. It was he who... Uh, and here's a quote from the archives of the General Convention of the Episcopal mm -hmm. Church of the time. Mm -hmm. His sympathy with those whose circumstances had changed for the worse led to the institution of St. Luke's Home for Indigent Christian Females. Don't you love the title? Indigent Christian Females. I think, and then later on, it was for uh, married couples who well, had fallen on hard times right. as well. He was really good at getting other people. Yeah. To so what he, when that became inadequate, mm -hmm. they needed more space. He raised enough money to buy a plot of land on what we now call the Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. um, and he had to raise money twice because he raised this money and then someone broke in and stole it. Right. So he had to raise it again. And he started a bigger one for the ladies of the Upper East Side and then persuaded a wealthy lady, her name was Talman, her last name, to build a church up there too. Um, and um, that same church now uh, is uh, the Roman Catholic Church of St. Thomas More, but that's another, mm -hmm. another mm -hmm. sideline. Mm -hmm. And um, then the parish house here was for um, married couples and mm -hmm. people like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And when it got to be not big enough, 
they moved it up to to Amsterdam Avenue, apart from where the cathedral mm -hmm. is now, mm -hmm. and it's still there. I, in the archives, I've come across some wonderful, um, you'd almost call it marketing material of yeah. the time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where there were galas and people to raise money yeah. For, yeah. for these causes, yeah. Yeah. which is really quite ahead of its time in many ways. It really was. I mean, he really, more than anyone else in this parish up to that time, mm -hmm. combined um, the religious aspect of, mm -hmm. of, of, of a disciplined life, uh, spiritual life, with um, a social mission mm. um, and was really good at getting supporters from outside the parish mm -hmm. too and within the diocese. Mostly a lot of them were high church types too, mm -hmm. but nonetheless there were others doing this too by, because of the, the need of the time. Mm. Um, he was a vigorous kind of Victorian type gentleman. For example, yeah. um, Theology was important for him, and on one occasion, uh, there was a guest preacher, and he was sitting in the chancel that is a rector, and he heard the speaker developing his talk to begin to develop what would be a Unitarian theology, you know, and he stood up, toddled in, and went to the end of the chancel, stopped him speaking, spoke to the congregation about why this theological point this man was making and developing was not acceptable in terms of the faith, and then said to the gentleman, either stop this line of preaching or leave that pulpit. Ooh. He was a forceful person. Yes. And you can see it in his portrait, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. um, and He's quite formidable. Formidable. And mm -hmm. he was here for a long time mm -hmm. until... Um, you know, there was the, uh, there was another fire. Mm -hmm. 1886? Yeah, and I mean, it was so sad. I mean, he had already lost at least one child, if not two, uh, to tuberculosis. Um, I, I think that um, the, the rectory uh, was a sink in many ways, you know, in terms of uh, plumbing, I don't know. Our um, registers of that period, which is one of the few remaining oh, yeah. Yeah, um, artifacts I have at that time, are filled with, it's so tragic, the, the ages of the young, of young deaths. Oh, it's so sad, yeah. And, yeah. So it was in 86, I guess, um, mm. uh, in the winters before New Year's. Um, he went with his two surviving daughters, both of whom had tuberculosis, oh. to Florida or someplace in the south. And when he came back New Year's Day, uh, the place was ablaze. Um, and that was the first big fire. Mm. Um, and um, he stepped right in and began raising money. Mm -hmm. While this was going on, one of his daughters died, mm. and the other one died a little bit later. But he saw... Uh, the whole place uh, restored. And I might add that before the fire, mm -hmm. um, I think it was in the um, sometime, I guess, in the 70s, probably, no, very early 80s, um, redid the church. Mm. And he redid it uh, in using a lot of Romanesque. It's very uh, ornamentation. And, yeah. yeah, very Romanesque. Yeah, yeah. All, yeah. All these, you see, we have these uh, archways now. Mm -hmm. Well, that they echo what he put in because mm -hmm. most of these high church places all wanted neo-Gothic spires, right, this kind of thing. Right. So, uh, and he ornamented the church a lot. You do see that in the interior <laughs> shots of that. He period, really did. Yeah, that the Verist brothers took because architecturally it was quite significant, I understand, yes, in, in the period. It yeah. really was. And so it went up in flames. Mm. But, you know, he's the kind of person who just got up and started over. Yeah. So he raised money and rebuilt the church. It was important for them uh, to have their own church. Um, so they, in effect, made a deal. Uh, he made a deal through with some lay people and uh, got a certain amount of money. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much it was. It's in my notes somewhere. Um, and decided to simply take the congregation, many of them not, were not living around here anyway, and go up to Harlow, which yeah. was very suburban kind of bucolic uh, in the end of the 80s. And um, they went up there, uh, and they built St. Luke's up there. And I tell the my formations people that I have every year that what is a church anyway? Mm. Um, 
what do you think? Well, you think most people think of a building. And as a matter of fact, for in a neighborhood, mm -hmm. people like some of these churches or support them because they're part of the physical environment and it makes them nostalgic to see this stuff. Mm -hmm. But they never enter the churches, mm -hmm. or if they did, what goes on here doesn't mean much to them. For other people, the church is people. Mm -hmm. And for other people, the church is uh, the work it does in the community. And of course, it's all those things. Mm -hmm. And I always tell the formation folks when I start with them that St. Luke's in the field, of which you know you're becoming a member, is one of the newest parishes in the in the in the city. I mean, get out of your mind that this parish existed since 1820, 21, mm. because that parish moved to Harlem mm. as a corporation, mm. because a church is also a corporation, mm. um, and that the building remained, and then it became part of another institution, Trinity mm. Parish. Well, they're actually part of it, too, is, is that they exhumed all the bodies. All the bodies. And oh, yes. there's a wonderful article that was published in the local paper that um, actually decried it because it was done under the dead of night. You should yeah. pardon the pun. Yeah. Um, because they didn't want to frighten people. <laughs> I know. And so it was literally almost, I wouldn't say grave robbing, but it was a mass exhumation of 500 yes. tombs. That were, and you had the option to, to go elsewhere if you wanted, if you didn't necessarily want to be up, uptown that far. But yeah. it really did happen um, yeah. quite covertly. And it took a while yeah. uh, for some... I, I remember reading, but I don't remember where now, and it may be a total hypocrisy, mm -hmm. kind of, some kind of uh, dream I had, mm -hmm. um, that they opened some of these caskets, mm -hmm. um, and one of them was of a young girl... Mm -hmm. Um, who was still remarkably preserved and her hair was still growing, mm. uh, which is kind of uh, mm. bad to think about. Yeah. Um, but eventually they all got buried somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a huge exodus, mm. really. Um, literally from the ground up. Literally from the ground up. Um, and that uh, then it became uh, a chapel of, of uh, St. Luke's Chapel of Trinity Parish uh, from... Um, well, from the 19, when, when, when we're talking about, from 1990, mm -hmm. 91, 92, uh, until 1976. Mm -hmm. um, and St. Luke's Uptown um, uh, flourished mm -hmm. uh, for a time. Um, there is an archival thing, I want to say, that may be of interest to you, mm -hmm. because um, a book was published in the oh, mid to late 1920s by a woman who carried the name Tuttle. In oh, her Penelope. Yeah. Penelope Tuttle. She was related to Isaiah. I'm not sure if it, no, it was his daughter-in-law, perhaps. I think so. And she right. wrote the seminal history, which is impossible to find. You're, that's what I told you, too. I, mean, we don't, I know. Anyone who's listening to Trinity please, doesn't have it either. No. And, there but, is a copy of the New York Public Library, but it's uh, not open access. Well, I've used it. Um, I'd like to ask you quickly about um, someone I'm very interested in, as I know you are, yeah. which is the Reverend Schleter. Oh, yes. Who was quite, quite the man. He was in an article, he was featured in an article in Time magazine in 1945, mm. and um, I haven't got access to the whole whole article, but it basically positions him as, and I don't I don't want to be twee about it, but you know the Bing Crosby kind of yes. priest for all the boys in the sense he, he that was. he was there for them and he recognised that some of these young fellows were living in the tenements because oh, much yes. had been in disrepair. And the gangs of New York were coming up, and there was a mob called the Hudson Dusters. Oh, yes, frightening. Who group. were very, they were quite, they were not a, a fun little group playing kickball in the street. Oh, no, they, they were, were the real very vicious, they were the real deal. Yeah. Mm. And he recognised that he could lose these young men to a life of crime. Right. And heaven, heaven knows what else. And then Tammany Hall got involved. Absolutely. In right. So it was that fascinating part of New York history that has been represented by Scorsese and Gangs of New York, but actually existed in our immediate oh, yes. area. And he instituted, his antidote was the Tough Club. Yeah, T-U-F-F. T-U-F-F, yeah. which was to get them involved, but yeah. on premises, yeah. rather not susceptible yeah. to... Yeah. He did incredible things that way. Mm. Um, 
And he served for the longest time. Yeah, until 45. Mm. Uh, you know, um, you, maybe we spoke about this before, mm -hmm. that when he first came, of course, he always wore, wore his cassock, cassock and the cross yeah. because he was kind of monastically inclined. He was a member of this order that was not monastic, but yeah. an ob oblate, they call it. Um, and he was mocked by a lot of these boys um, for being celibate and all that. At one point, um, some of them broke in and... I heard they trashed his... Trashed his place, house, right. Yeah. Um, but he was not to be put off. No. Um, uh, he was tall and um, of, um, of working-class German stock. Mm -hmm. um, he he uh, was raised in the Lower East Side, um, his parents were immigrants, uh, his father was a blacksmith, and um, he and his sister. So, and, and he was, he and his sister were, in a sense, what's the, redeemed isn't the right word, but they were advantaged mm -hmm. um, for education by uh, uh, J.O.S. Huntington, um, who was the founder of the Order of the Holy Cross, mm -hmm. um, who was very much uh, called to monastic life, whose father was a broad church bishop. Um, they were from a very good family, um, and um, he, he was born in the 1850s. Um, and he was a major worker uh, for um, working-class people. Um, he was connected with Simcovich at Greenwich. I was about to say yeah. that, and, and, and Schlitter, and too. Schlitter. And, so, and, and of course, Simcovich yeah. was a communicant here mm -hmm. in St. Luke's. And, mm -hmm. um, they really did things that a lot of, you know, polite society would not do, mm. and that is they supported labor and so on. I, I came upon a, a New York Times article, which I clipped uh, through the historical newspaper thing, mm -hmm. um, that it was in 1914 that Schlieder, in cooperation with the rector of Ascension, mm -hmm. um, one night provided a major restaurant dinner for IWW workers who were protesting. Right. And this was a very radical organization, people thought, right. in those days. Um, and uh, they didn't attend the meeting, but they paid for it. Right. Um, and these, go these guys usually had to dine on bean sandwiches and so on, but this was a regular meal with waiters and everything else. And this is only one thing mm -hmm. that, that Schlieder was doing, mm -hmm. uh, and Simkovich also mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. um, once they were talking, I mean, his whole idea was, the poor are just like all the rest of us, except they have to deal with different conditions. You can't work with them mm -hmm. effectively mm -hmm. if you think you're very different mm -hmm. from them. And it was tied into his theology. I was just reading something about this recently. He, in his preaching, I understand, because he didn't leave much in the way of, mm -hmm. of printed uh, sermons and so on. Oh. I've been given. Sorry, then. Yeah. Inside, he's uh, Good Friday sermons. For all of them? Mm -hmm. Well, oh, quite a lot of them. Oh, I've got to see them then. Yeah, yeah. from yeah. Holy Cross, from Holy Cross. Oh, that's yeah, great. Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's so a treasure trove from you and I. Oh, that's yeah. great. So, um, but anyway, what I read elsewhere was that that he emphasized um, Jesus's humanity, while, of course, as, as an Anglo-Catholic, talked about his mm -hmm. divinity, uh, but. Basically, he said that the humanity is important because he models for the rest of us mm. how you treat other human beings. Mm. Um, and that that's how he treated the boys. That's right. how he treated young people. That's how he treated... Once he and Sinkovich uh, were at a meeting and some people uh, came down and were talking about um, certain missions for children of the Lower East Side who are going to learn to sing in choir or something... And they referred uh, to them as basically street gamins. Mm. Mm. And he said, well, if that's the case, um, you referred to them like that as another kind of species. Mm. He said, then I'm one too because I was in that choir at one point. Right. Uh, we're all street gamins. Yeah. So he and Simkovich, very different backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, very much involved uh, in, in outright what we, radical ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the reason why I found doing parish history fascinating is that church history in general, and certainly parish history, mm -hmm. can serve as a prism 
to see so many facets of urban life or whatever the life of the area, various political facets mm -hmm. and all the rest, they get filtered through here so that if you take St. Luke's and take a big look at it, mm -hmm. you know, it comes out of you know, post-revolutionary New York um, in what I call the Knickerbocker Age, mm -hmm. based on you know, the old Dutch uh, mm -hmm. aristocracy and the English who kind of adopted it. And that Knickerbocker Age lasts about the first third of the 19th century. And then we move into what I call for another book I'm working on, um, the High Victorian Age. When that's the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. into the 60s. Um, and then into the 70s. And then by 1880, we move into the Gilded Age. And the Gilded Age... Uh, lasted right straight through uh, up to the First World War, mm -hmm. although the progressive movement had started. Mm -hmm. And that this place is changed by each, or is affected by each of those periods. I mean, mm -hmm. you can see. Mm -hmm. um, and one can't really appreciate and understand uh, what Simkovich and Schlitter did, mm -hmm. that they come from such different backgrounds, unless you understand that polite society in the Gilded Age basically were perfectly willing to do handouts for the poor mm -hmm. and do wonderful things for the poor, mm -hmm. but they never identified with them. Mm -hmm. um, it was a noblesse oblige. It was a noblesse oblige. Absolutely. Also, sorry to interrupt, but no, we had please. the longest-running doll queue in history, and it was Here. a request, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. So, it was, but I it, forgot the name of it. John, now. oh gosh, I should have done the research. No, that's okay, uh, because I remember. But long after his death, it yes. continued, so yeah. they would line up. Yeah, the something dole. Yeah, the dole, um, the dole yeah, line. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, because somebody in gave history, money for it that. It was the right. longest run. It was left in a bequest for wealth. Yeah. So it was people giving, charitable giving, right, and right, pledging, right. but not necessarily understanding to whom. Right. They were. Right. You know, the, the thing is, in the Gilded Age is, of course, the time when the social gospel. Mm. Um, but a lot of, of, of high church folks, Anglo-Catholics, mm -hmm. um, some of them were attracted to it. Mm -hmm. He was, Schlitter is a good example. But some were not. Mm -hmm. uh, so that the um, man that I'm writing about, uh, Morgan Dix, mm -hmm. um, who died in 1908, but he lived through all of these things, mm -hmm. he was, he really put a lot of the resources of the parish for these social movements and all that. But he was very conservative uh, in his um, political mm. and social outlooks. Um, Separation of church and state. Well, just yeah. basically, you know... Um, From a pragmatic perspective. Yeah, it was noblesse yeah. oblige yeah. for him. Um, right. And that um, the idea that someone would support, for example, uh, labor unions. Mm. Open. And mm. basically, you help the laboring person, but you don't ha help them to organize. Of course. Not Schleter uh, and not Simklovich. Um, and so, again, these are themes that mm. inter mm. intertwine uh, as one looks at uh, a place like this. Well, and it repeats and repeats and repeats. And that history of social um, awareness, yeah. consciousness, right. being translated into genuine outreach is um, a key thing that just manifests throughout the very, very long history here. And uh, symbolised too, I, I love that um, Reverend Schlitter did this. He recognised that these young lads also needed fresh air. Oh, yeah. Countryside, because by then it wasn't a healthful field oh, no, <laughs> by any means. Um, and he used his own money to purchase land in Cornwall yeah, on right. stage right. and made a camp. Right where obviously there were church services, but there's pictures, wonderful pictures of them, archival. Yeah, I images. love those pictures. Aren't they gorgeous? I took slides of yeah. some of them, right? Where they're playing baseball and um, yeah. camping and doing yeah. all the things that young lads do. Yeah, and have to keep active. And keep right? active, yeah. yeah. Active mind, active body, yes. But yeah. he used his own money to do that. Yeah, yeah. And then when, when he died, he... Uh, Left it, I uh, sold it. I yeah. think to to Trinity. Uh, Trinity used yeah, it as right. a chapel. You know, um, we didn't get a chance, maybe for another time, uh, yeah. to talk about um, the more recent times, mm -hmm. um, uh, particularly the time since I came here, um, because there was a lot of new kinds of outreach going of on. Um, I, I may have mentioned when we were chatting mm -hmm. earlier. I don't remember that 
I believe I was here when Lucia Ballantyne was ordained mm -hmm. here yes. by B Bishop yes. Moore, um, and that what happened here um, in the uh, 70s um, with all the political, social, and cultural revolutions um, that people back uh, in the earlier days would not have imagined. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. A lot of it uh, stimulated by the Vietnam War, of course, and our policies internationally, but also having to do with uh, gender questions, uh, sexuality, mm -hmm. women's rights, and of course, very important uh, 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 racial rights. I mean, the, the whole question of civil rights mm -hmm. that convulsed the nation and, and churches. And again, this place um, was on the side, by and large, of change, mm. of support. Mm -hmm. um, Ledley, um, gave, Ledley gave a wonderful talk. I think it was called The Gay Ghetto. Mm. Um, and um, do you have that? I don't. I don't because I'll have to Xerox it for you. Or, um, he gave the talk to, in, to Integrity, which mm -hmm. is a, a gay organization back then. Um, and um, he talked about Christopher Street as a problem. Mm. Um, you wouldn't know it now uh, mm. because uh, it's very different. But back when he came here, first mm. as vicar and then as, as uh, rector in the, in the 70s, um, it was full of, of uh, you know, drug dealing and uh, prostitution and so on. Um, the, there was even um, neighborhood organizations developing to kind of curb it. Mm. Um, and that that was part of the movement also to give rights to these people. Um, it was very, very dicey and a very funny anecdote in this regard. Um, I use this when we had uh, the, the final kind of uh, assembly before Ledley left, <clears throat> kind of reminiscing. And um, I found out that a woman who worked in the office here mm -hmm. um, was talking about what it was like when um, Father Weed was vicar, was vicar. He was the one who was vicar mm -hmm. before independence. And she says, once Father Weed left, everything began to change, and all the local kooks came in. <laughs> kooks. <laughs> yeah. I think cookies, K-O-O-K-I-E-S, I think. Oh, she cookies. Was, yeah. I think, uh-huh. Um, it wasn't a term of endearment. No, I, I um, get the feeling it wasn't. So, so basically, um, we've always dealt uh, with changing social and cultural conditions. Um, and on the whole, I think we've dealt uh, creatively uh, with it. Um, um, but at the cold face of crisis too, which is very important. The what? The cold face. Oh yes. Of crisis. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, the HIV epidemic started, oh. began to rage and was particularly hit a lot of um, our community here. Oh yes. Um, where young men who were disowned by their families uh, lived, their community was their family. Uh, if they were diagnosed and yeah. were unfortunately right. terminal, a lot of funeral homes would not. Um, bury them no. or give them rights, but we did. So yeah, Ledley that. really led in that, so to speak. Ledley led, yeah. And he, I was hearing that, of course, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I was on the vestry mm -hmm. um, when um, we instituted this um, uh, meals for uh, HIV yeah, people. people um, yeah, yeah like right. Um, and there was a lot of unease and mm. f fear. It was a time of fear. Mm -hmm. Um, the woman uh, whose name I'm blocking now, who was uh, head of the school, mm -hmm. um, was not willing uh, to have the school dining room used. Mm -hmm. uh, she was worried that parents would be concerned, and she was concerned. Mm -hmm. So what we did is authorized uh, money for revamping what is now Lachlan Hall, mm -hmm. putting in a whole kitchen and yeah. everything, in order to use that. Um, the fear level was very, very high about how contagious. Fear was an epidemic yeah, all over right. the world. Because oh, right. Yes. Well, of course, obvious something new you never heard yeah. of. Uh, yeah. So um, we lived through, you know, yeah. a lot of that. Um, and um, someone like Molly, the, the, the McGreevy, that we yeah, haven't talked like about, to, but yeah. she, um, she, she was, ministered in she really yeah. did. I mean, in a way that was above and beyond, but it was part of her calling. She 
spent a lot of time visiting the hospital. Um, she also, in the apartment next to ours, um, um, a male couple lived in there uh, from the time we moved in, mm -hmm. and they both came down with disease, mm -hmm. um, and um, one died and the other died. But she, and they were not members of this yeah. church, but she visited them mm -hmm. regularly. I don't remember now how she um, learned about them. Maybe I told her. I don't really remember. Um, the community, that community was so close-knit. Yes, right. Yeah. But, but she had this incredible quality mm. of bringing an incredible sense of vivacity yeah. and, and, and good humor mm. to this remarkable pastoral work. I mean, it's not, you know, she being was, a weepy Sally or exactly. anything like that. Exactly. You know, because I, I have some audio of her oh, that do, right. um, we yeah. want to cut into this, and I yeah. wanted you to do a little introduction about Molly because she was an actress on the soap opera, yes, obviously. Yes, yes. And she had her calling. With her husband. With her husband, who was, uh, ended up being on... Uh, he played Wilson in Home Improvement. Yes. Which was a sitcom of the right. 80s, 90s, maybe. I 90s, think I think. 90s, I think, yeah. yeah. Is that the one where you never yeah, saw... Yeah, you never saw... You just saw just his hat in his eyes. Right, right, yeah, right. He's kind of like the peekaboo fence guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. so tell me a little about Molly. Well, Molly is remarkable because... Um, First of all, she was from a very privileged background, um, Upper East Side girl. Um, what's the school that she went to? I think I mentioned it to you, and I just dropped out of my mind. Is it Spence? Yes, that school. Um, and uh, then went on to college. I forget mm -hmm. what college she went to. But anyway, she, in college, really got interested in drama. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, after college, um, she uh, decided by herself uh, to just take herself to Paris and um, a study with Marcel Marcel. So, yeah, the mind, that's right. And just, she went in and said she'd like to do this, and uh, he was kind of surprised, I guess, yeah. from what she tells me and told and me. Mind his acceptance, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and so um, she studied with him mm -hmm. um, and then came back and uh, did this, and then she um, was an actress, and she did television too. Mm -hmm. Wonderful sense of humor. Uh, her laugh was infectious, mm -hmm. um, and her sermons were were wonderful mm -hmm. because they were theologically sound and profound, um, but also had a light enough touch to engage, that engage people, right, mm -hmm. uh, in, in ways that if someone else tried it, it wouldn't work. Right. You know, I mean, if you don't have that, that mm -hmm. sense of mm -hmm. that, to try to be that way mm -hmm. uh, looks foolish. But mm -hmm. she really uh, made it work, um, and she was the, the right person for that mm -hmm. time. Um, I... Um, then after she left, um, I visited at least once um, um, her and her husband mm -hmm. up in Stamford. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he, they were both, I think, retired then. Um, because, uh, and I stayed overnight because she wanted me to give a, a presentation. Um, and then once in a while, she'd stop by here. Yeah. Um, I was very saddened to hear of, of her death. Uh, she died after her husband did. But she was a, a good example of some of the remarkable priests we've had through here, mm. um, not just rectors, no. uh, but uh, people who came yes, for a while exactly. and enriched in their own ways mm -hmm. um, what uh, they had to offer. Right. Um, uh, and it's, it's interesting from that point of view. Mm -hmm. um, Roger Furlow, we didn't talk about him. He's the next one I want to say, and then I think we've got to wrap it up. Just This is chapter one of our conversation. Yeah. Okay, so, great. Uh, Roger, now you... Um, you also developed this wonderful kind of methodology, which I'm recalling the kind of exit interviews, for, um, for yeah. lack of a better term, Southern Diamonds. That's okay. <laughs> yes, I want to give it something with more pomp and circumstance. Oh, that's maybe. okay. Yeah. Of, um, fa some fa of fa farewell interviews. Farewells, aves. Uh -huh. uh, At any rate. Uh, well, you interviewed some, in, and in Roger's case, it was a town hall. Yes. And which was fascinating because there were a whole bunch of people. Yeah. And he was, you were interviewing him, yeah. but it was Q and A. You yep. were doing a Q and A, which yep. was a wonderful way to. I'm so glad you. Engage. Yeah. We have it. Um, he was remarkable too. Um, talk about different gifts, you mm -hmm. know. Um, as you know, he came, came from Yale, uh, where he was a very popular professor of literature. Um, he had a PhD in English literature. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and uh, was a. Um, Major, uh, what was his? I think Milton. Uh, he mm -hmm. did a lot of that, um, and uh, he uh, then decided he had this religious vocation and uh, became a, 
a priest. Um, and he and his wife Anne and their daughter Liz, when they came, moved to the rectory. And um, his great, um, his emphasis mm -hmm. was on education as ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and it was his great strength. He packed them in. Mm. Um, he gave courses, you know, in reading the Bible, uh, but he gave courses also in literature. Um, he gave a series of, of, uh, of lectures, a whole, whole season, on, on Milton. Mm. And we had to use the, the name of the church yeah. instead of Laughlin Hall there. Um, uh, he really was a, a, a gifted teacher um, and full of energy and kind of which is intellectual energy, which uh, was also physical too. Something he'd be talking, he'd be moving his feet and so on, you know. Um, and uh, he uh, really had a, a, a kind of infectious uh, mm -hmm. curiosity. Which is a wonderful way to, I guess, bring our conversation to an end, sadly. Yeah. I want to thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's I really, always lovely really to enjoy it. You and I can just talk well, the leg off a chair. We, we can. Hours. Yeah, we uh, can. Yeah. Uh, and we will next time. Which is a wonderful way to, I guess, bring our